Saul is dead. Jonathan and two of Saul's other sons are also dead. Until recently, their corpses adorned the walls of the Philistine city of Beth Shan. Israel is now under the rule of its perennial enemy, the Philistines. Oblivious of what has just happened to Israel, David remains behind enemy lines in the Hebrew stronghold of Ziklag. Meanwhile, Saul still has one surviving son to continue his dynasty, Ishbosheth, and he will not give up his crown without a struggle. It's an absolute cliffhanger for the first book of Samuel to end on, and the drama continues apace as book two begins and the news reaches David that the manhunt against him that has been so relentless that he has had to seek asylum in another country is over. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible, episode 69, Death in the Afternoon. Welcome back, religion-free Bible podcast fans, and welcome too if you're new. It's a good time to join us as these are some of the Bible's most exciting pages. If you've just clicked the play latest episode button, here's some context. We're slap bang in the middle of the Old Testament, around 1000 BC. For the past 500 years, Israel has been run by holy men and women, but recently decided it wanted a king like all its neighbours have. The king Israel is given is an absolute disaster, an object lesson in how not to rule a country. This king is Saul, and knowing that he is about to be captured in battle, he has just committed suicide. The door is now wide open for Israel's second king, a former shepherd called David, a man whose statue by Michelangelo stands in the Galleria dell'Accademia in Florence and who is so famous that his face appears on the King of Spades playing card. You may want to scoot back over the last couple of episodes for a proper debrief. Anyway, thanks for joining us on what is turning into a very leisurely tour of the Bible. And I hope you find this all as interesting as I do. Right, season nine is upon us. Here goes. The two books of Samuel were originally one, and so there was no significant time gap between the two. Interestingly, despite being called the second book of Samuel, Samuel does not feature in it, having died earlier in the previous book. The action picks up behind Philistine lines. Three days after the catastrophic battle at Mount Gilboa, a survivor reaches David, his clothes torn and dust on his head, a sign of mourning in Israel. The man prostrates himself at David's feet and tells him that he has escaped from the Israelite camp. Many men fled from the battle, he tells David, before dropping the bombshell that Saul and Jonathan are dead. Those of you who've been podcast regulars will know that however flawed the king might have been, David sees Saul as God's chosen one and passed over two opportunities to kill him with his own hands. Such is his respect for Israel's monarchy. Listeners will also know that Jonathan was David's closest friend, so the news is doubly tragic for him. The man's story now enters the realms of fiction, and it seems clear that he is hoping to ingratiate himself with David. 
According to the SKP, he was the one who put Saul out of his misery when he found him badly injured and leaning on his spear. And he throws in plenty of drama. Chariots in hot pursuit, Saul in the throes of death, and the seizing of the dead king's crown and armband all form part of his elaborate and largely fictional story. However, he does present David with Saul's crown, and it is clear that the basics are true. Saul really is dead. Grief-stricken, David and his men tear their clothes. They weep and fast until evening, bewailing this awful strike against their country. They mourn the loss of Saul and Jonathan and the soldiers who the Bible refers to as the army of the Lord. It doesn't help that the messenger is an Amalekite, no doubt naturalised into Israel. If what he says is true, he showed no hesitation in killing the man who David believes God chose to be king. His blood is on his own head, David tells him, before ordering one of his soldiers to execute him. David then bursts into song, begging that the news of Saul's defeat doesn't reach the ears of the Philistines in case they turn the tragedy into a celebration. A gazelle lies slain, he says. He asks that no dew should fall on Mount Gilboa because of what happened to Saul there. David praises the courage of Saul and Jonathan in battle. He describes both men as loved during their lifetime, both swifter than eagles and stronger than lions, and who are now together in death. David commands Israel's women to weep for the dead king, whose continued military success ensured the kind of national prosperity that allowed them to live well and wear fine clothes. He laments the death of his dear friend Jonathan, whose love he describes as more wonderful than that of women. Saul, Jonathan and the best of Israel's army and military weaponry have been lost in one catastrophic battle. How the mighty have fallen, David cries, in one of the Bible's most famous soundbites. And such is the importance that he attaches to his lament that he orders everyone in Israel to learn the words. Fully aware that he has been anointed as king in waiting, David needs to act. Believing that God has told him to go up to the city of Hebron, he brings both his wives from Ziklag as well as all his men and their families and settles here. It is in Hebron that men from the tribe of Judah arrive to pour oil on David's head and make him their king. Needing the support of those who were formerly loyal to Saul, David's first act is to win over the men of Jabesh-Gilead. These are the people who brought Saul's body from the walls of Beshan and gave it a dignified burial. It's an olive branch, but the succession is not going to be an easy one. David may be king of Judah, but there are many more tribes to win over. He also knows that Saul still has sons, and there are other kingmakers at work in Israel. Rather than fall in behind David as soon as his king is dead, Saul's army commander does what he can to keep Saul's dynasty in control of Israel. Abner survives the massacre at Mount Gilboa. Still loyal to his king, he backs one of Saul's surviving royal sons, Ishbosheth, and brings him to the Transjordanian city of Manaheim to crown him king over all Israel. 
The bulk of the tribes appear to agree with Abner's choice, but Judah remains loyal to David. It's a sign of the mess that Israel is in now that God is no longer consulted about the succession. The people assume that their next king must come from the royal bloodline, while Samuel remained open to Saul's successor being completely unrelated to him. For the first time in its history, the nation is divided, with both Ishbosheth and David believing that they should be Israel's sole ruler. A summit is agreed, and both parties meet in Gibeon, in the tribal territory of Benjamin. Here, the delegations sit opposite each other around a circular pool. An archaeological team from the University of Pennsylvania uncovered the Pool of Gibeon in the late 1950s. It measures around 36 feet square and descends 88 feet to the water table, and water is accessed by a spiral staircase cut into the walls of the pool. It's okay if you don't understand imperial measurements, I put the metric ones in the show notes. Ishbosheth is not present at the meeting, and so Abner does the talking for him. The leaders agree that Ishbosheth's supporters should field 12 men in one-on-one -on -one combat with David's. The idea being that the winning side clearly has the right to rule. The result is a disappointing stalemate, as the 24 young warriors face each other, then stab one another simultaneously and fatally. This pointless waste of life then escalates into a full-on battle, during which Abner is chased by one of David's nephews, an extremely fast young man called Asahel. Abner can't outrun his pursuer and tries to persuade him to chase someone else. Asahel continues the pursuit and again Abner warns him off, telling him that he doesn't want to have to kill him. Asahel's brother Joab is commander of David's army and Abner really doesn't want to face the fallout of having the blood of Joab's family on his own hands. Asahel isn't in the mood to give up the chase and only stops when the butt of Abner's spear is thrust into his stomach and emerges from his back, killing him. When they discover Asahel's dead body, David's army stops fighting, but the dead man's brothers, Joab and Abishai, continue chasing Abner, intent on revenge. Saul's commander is able to reach the safety of a hilltop where troops from Benjamin rally round him. It's been a breathless and bloody chase, and Abner appeals for calm. Israelites are chasing Israelites, and this needs to end. Joab realises that Abner is making sense and blasts his trumpets to stop the advance of David's men. Abner marches back to his base at Manaheim, his force depleted by 360 soldiers who have fallen in the skirmish. Nineteen men down himself, Joab marches back to David's base at Hebron, stopping at Bethlehem on the way to bury Asahel in his family tomb. It has been a bloody and inconclusive episode, and not the kind of drama that fiction writers would dream up to make a good story. In a Bible that often stretches the credulity or faith of its readers, it's refreshing to come across passages which seem so real. But the fighting is far from over. The sparring between the two rival monarchies continues for some time, and the longer it drags on, the more powerful David becomes. David's time in Hebron appears to be spent collecting wives and having children. By the time readers rejoin the action, his harem has five new members, 
Maka, Haggith, Ahinoam, Abital, and Eglah, and all six of his wives have each provided David with a son. Meanwhile, Abner has been doing what he can to keep the house of Saul from disappearing altogether, but he can only work with the tools that he has been given, which, in the case of Ishbosheth, don't appear to be particularly sharp. When Saul's heir apparent accuses Abner of helping himself to one of his dead father's concubines, the commander finally breaks. He has been supremely loyal to Saul, pushing back David against the odds, and this accusation, even if well-founded, seems petty. Abner asks the king if he is a dog's head, which seems quite an obscure question. Dogs are viewed as little more than vermin in the Bible, and the suggestion here is that Judah is the dog and Ishbosheth is accusing Abner of being its head, or, in other words, a traitor. In choosing to censure Abner over his choice of sexual partner, Ishbosheth has failed to see the bigger picture that Abner is on his side and is his best chance of remaining king. The commander is furious, swearing that he will transfer his allegiance to David, a game changer that terrifies Saul's son. Abner sends messengers to David, acknowledging that Israel is one country and that he will use his influence over the rest of the tribes to help David be its sole ruler. David agrees to the deal on condition that his wife Michal is returned to him. After being snatched back by her father, Saul's daughter was married off to a supporter of Saul called Paltiel. If Abner is serious about his support, David says, he will return her. It's uncertain whether David loves Michal. Later events show that they don't especially click, or whether it is simply because he had to kill 200 Philistines in order to marry her. As far as the women in his life, it's clear that Michal initially seems smitten with him and that he has considerable admiration for Abigail. However, the true love story in this book is one that is yet to happen, between David and a woman named Bathsheba. Cowed into submission, Ishbosheth orders Saul's daughter to be taken from Paltiel, who follows after his beloved wife, weeping pitifully until ordered by Abner to return home. Abner is fully aware of God's promise to David that he will rescue Israel from the ever-present Philistine threat and shares this with the tribal elders, ordering them to make David their king. He visits the tribal region of Benjamin in person as he knows that the Benjamites, more than any other tribe, will be loyal to Saul as he was born here. After a banquet given in his honour by David in Hebron, Saul's military commander rides off to arrange a summit with all Israel's leaders, where they will pledge allegiance to David and acknowledge him as Israel's rightful king. It's a pragmatic move by Abner, but his own survival instinct helps shore up Israel and make the nation strong again under one king, a man who he believes has been chosen to rule by God. Just when the planets appear to be aligning, a senseless act of revenge puts David's monarchy in jeopardy. Soon after Abner leaves to arrange the summit, Joab returns to Hebron at the head of David's army. The men have just carried out a successful raid and are loaded down with plunder. Joab is horrified to hear that his uncle David has been entertaining Abner. 
Still furious that Abner killed his brother Asahel, Joab sees a clear conspiracy where there is none. To him, Abner's sole purpose in visiting David is to scope out the Hebron stronghold in readiness for an attack. Without David knowing, his commander summons Abner back to the city. No doubt assuming that David is behind the get-together and that this is all part of the peace process, Abner shows no hesitation in accepting and returns to Hebron. Here, Joab ushers him into an inner room as if to speak with him privately, then stabs him in the stomach as revenge for killing his brother back at Gibeon. It is a needless act. Joab has let his personal vendetta against Abner get in the way of national security. David is distraught. He immediately disowns the murder. This is Joab's doing, not the kingdom of Israel, he says. He curses his nephew, asking God that Joab's family will never be without someone who has leprosy or needs crutches, dies by the sword or has no food. David orders his renegade commander to wear sackcloth and to walk in front of Abner's funeral cortege as humiliating punishment and weeps aloud at the loss of the one man who has made his sole kingship of Israel a possibility. As the procession continues, David sings his grief and the people weep at what has happened. Abner didn't die a criminal, he says. His hands and feet were not in chains. Instead, he died the innocent victim of a wicked attack. There appears to be a genuine sense of loss at Abner's death and David fasts for the rest of the day. His grief leaves Israel in no doubt that he had no part in the death of the man who, until recently, represented all but one of its tribes. This is not how David wanted to become king, and his victory has come at enormous cost. A great man has fallen, he tells his people, and though he may be the king who has been chosen by God, he is hostage to the violence of men like Joab. He asks God to repay evil men for their deeds, and, as Joab walks humiliated at the head of the procession, the gravity of what he has done must sink in. He now has a real sense of where public opinion lies, and a genuine fear of what lays ahead for anyone who puts family pride ahead of the security of his country. The turbulent years of David's accession to Israel's throne are reminiscent of something out of Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones. With Ishbosheth still alive, the threat to David's accession still remains a genuine one. The Bible does mention another heir to Saul's throne, however, Mephibosheth. He is Jonathan's son, but is only five years old and crippled, making him an unlikely candidate for Israel's crown. The succession then defaults to a surviving son of Saul, which is why Ishbosheth was chosen. However, with Abner dead, Ishbosheth senses that the game is up, and the Bible describes how his courage is lost. Despite Saul's dynasty no longer being an active threat, two of Ishbosheth's military leaders decide to take matters into their own hands. In the heat of the day, while the former pretender to Israel's throne is taking a siesta, they approach the palace under the pretext of getting food. Here, they find Ishbosheth asleep in his quarters and stab him to death. 
The assassins then take Ishbosheth's head to David at Hebron, announcing that this is the son of Saul, the man who tried to kill him. Without any clear instruction from God, the men claim that this is God taking his revenge. David is exasperated. He tells the two vigilantes what happened to the man who came to Ziklag to tell him that he had killed Saul, thinking that this was good news. To kill Saul's successor in cold blood in his own bed is even worse, he says. The earth needs to be rid of them, he tells the assassins, before having them executed and their mutilated bodies placed on display where everyone can see what happens to anyone who harms Saul's family. Meanwhile, Ishbosheth's head is taken and given a dignified burial in the same tomb as Abner in Hebron. David may have been told that he will be Israel's king, he may have been anointed as king by Samuel, but there is still plenty of work ahead before the crown can finally be placed on his head. First, David needs a capital city from which to rule. The one he chooses is a stronghold on a hill on the border of the tribal lands of Judah and Benjamin. The city is currently ruled by the Canaanite Jebusites and is called Salem. Today, we know it as Jerusalem. The assault on the future city of God is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. And if you like reading as much as you do listening, you can find Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible, available on Amazon. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Just search Holy Bible Podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, why not give us a five-star rating? Thank you very much, and see you all next time. Thank you.